Good morning, everyone. Great to see you all. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for the eternal gospel of Christ, Lord, the good news, the greatest news, Lord, of salvation of guilty sinners, Lord, achieved by your son on the cross who died for our sins, who became our righteousness. And Father, this morning, Lord, as, as I just uh, attempt to bring your word, Lord, in, in the power of the Spirit, just trusting, Lord, that you will lead me and, Lord, that you will give power to my words, Lord, I pray that, Lord, you will awaken sinners, Lord, that you will bring sinners to, to repentance, to faith in Christ, and, Lord, that you will encourage the saints, Lord, that we may um, go out with boldness, preaching the gospel with authority and the strength and power of your spirit. Amen. The title of my message this morning is Righteousness for Eternity. And I'd like you to please turn with me to the book of Hebrews. That's Hebrews in the New Testament. And we're going to be reading firstly from chapter 2, and then we're going to be reading also from chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 2, and I am reading from verse 14. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death we may, he may destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those through the fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest pertaining to God, in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And then if you'd kindly just go forward to chapter 9, Hebrews chapter 9, verses 27 and 28. Hebrews 9, 27 and 28. And it is appointed for men to die once, and after this the judgment. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly await for him, he will appear a second time, apart from, apart from sin for salvation. Unregenerate man's biggest fear is the fear of death. His fear is so great that he is in bondage to it for his entire life. It's an obsessive fear that never, ever goes away. Threaten man with possible death and he will do just about anything to avoid it. If this, his fear of, of death is because of the inevitable judgment that follows it, as we've just heard. If, if what follows death is just annihilation, then he wouldn't have anything to worry about. He could delight himself in his every sinful desire, but he instinctively knows that when he dies, judgment will follow. And whether he consciously realises it or not, the greatest longing of his eternal soul is to be able to face God, the righteous judge, as a righteous being then he could face God without fear. But he finds that there is a, a latent power within him that makes him a slave to the sinful desires of his fallen nature so that he can never be righteous in God's sight. 
This only intensifies his nagging fear of judgment, so he tries to mitigate it by seeking out distractions in all that the world has to offer him. But there is nothing in this world that he can observe or experience that can ultimately satisfy the eternal longing of his soul. Because as Paul the Apostle reminded the church at Corinth, the things that are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. 2 Corinthians 4.18 The things we see and experience now can provide some fleeting pleasure, um, but they can never satisfy the deep spiritual desires of man, and very soon they will pass away forever. In the book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament, the great King Solomon, a man renowned for his wisdom, reflects upon the experiences of a life lived under the sun. Now, he, he uses that phrase, under the sun, nearly 30 times in 12 chapters, and it's not found anywhere else in the Bible. It's an expression that embodies life on this earth. And Solomon concludes that this earthly life lived under the sun is ultimately as pointless as chasing the wind. He looks back and he recalls, Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure. For my heart rejoiced in all my labour, and this was my reward for all my labour. And then I looked on all the works that my hands had done, and all the labour which I had toiled, and indeed all was vanity and grasping for the wind. There was no profit under the sun. Ecclesiastes 2, 10 to 11. Solomon is writing as an older man here. When we read Solomon's three books in the Bible, it's fairly easy to guess at what stage of life he was when he wrote those individual books. In the Song of Solomon, he writes as a young man. Historically, it depicts the wooing and wedding of his sweetheart and the joys and heartaches of wedded life. In the book of Proverbs, he's writing as a middle-aged man, trying to stop his son and others making the same mistakes that he'd made. And in Ecclesiastes, he's looking back over his life and he's asking the big questions. What is life all about? Is it worth living? How can we make the most of it? These are vital questions. But sadly, it seems some of Solomon's conclusions are all over the place. At times, he seems to be a proponent of truth and hedonism and fatalism all at the same time. In Ecclesiastes 3.11, he says, God has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from beginning to end. And we're going to come back to this verse in just a minute. And then he says, I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to, be, um, and to do good and as long as they live, and also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil, for this is God's gift to man. This verse uh, seems like a blueprint for the uh, nominally religious works-based self-affirming pleasure seeker. Note the expression, as long as they live. The focus is squarely on your best life now. This is the sort of verse that Joel Osteen could preach a dozen sermons on. 
Solomon seems to be saying that there is nothing better than to be happy. Eat, drink, be merry. Enjoy the fruits of your labor for as long as you can because these are the gifts from God. Oh, and don't forget to do some good works too. One commentator remarked, this is a low view of life, a completely sub-Christian view in its outlook. But we must continually remember that Solomon's viewpoint here is thoroughly earthbound. Solomon then goes on to say, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it and, and nothing can be taken from it. For God has done it so that people fear before him. The first part is quite consistent with the rest of scripture. The second part we need to be a little bit careful with. Solomon correctly observes that the decrees of God are immutable. They are absolute and unassailable. Man cannot alter anything that God has decreed by either adding to it or taking away from it. If he could, God would not be sovereign. However, to say that God has done this so that people should fear before him is only partially correct. Uh, the fear of God is spoken about throughout the Bible, but it always needs to be uh, talked about in context. To apply the fear of God universally because of his decrees can easily be perceived as a, as a form of fatalism. Um, Muslims commonly use the expression inshallah, which means literally, should Allah want to. This also implies the immutability of Allah, but, but no one can ever know until the day of judgment what Allah will decide. Islam teaches that on that day all humanity will be resurrected and each person will be taken to account for their deeds before ultimately entering their final abode of heaven or hell. And Allah will have sole discretion when he decides whether an individual's evil deeds outweigh his good deeds, and therefore he must be feared. This is very different to Christianity, where salvation does not depend on an individual's good deeds outweighing their bad deeds. In Christianity, God offers eternal righteousness to all who come to Christ because of his works on the cross by faith. The one who puts his faith in Christ never needs to wonder whether he will be considered righteous enough by God on the day of judgment and therefore never needs to fear that God will reject him. We're going to explore this further, but now let's go back to that profound statement in Ecclesiastes 3.11. God has put eternity into man's heart. Every human being is born with an innate sense that they are an eternal being. God implanted into the human soul an awareness that there is something more than just this temporary world, something divine, something eternal. And with that awareness, a hope that we can one day find a fulfillment that simply cannot be provided by the vanity of this world. But despite this, most men choose not to acknowledge this God-given awareness. And when man does that, he soon finds himself trying to quench his thirst for the eternal things which never go away through a merry-go-round of meaningless activities under the sun. 
But of course, this is impossible. That which is eternal can never be satisfied by that which is temporal. Never. If that was the case, then Solomon, of all people, would have found satisfaction under the sun. He had the power to do anything he ever wanted and the wealth to, to indulge in his every whim. One commentator notes, he tried science and agriculture, even breeding his own cattle. Then he moved onto the arts, no doubt inheriting a love of music from his father, who of course was the great King David, the psalmist. He built some great buildings. He gathered pictures from all over the world and placed them in a gallery. And then he turned to entertainment with court comedians visiting him in his palace. But none of this satisfied him. He was involved in business and he amassed a fortune in the commercial world. He tried pleasure, food, wine, women. Still dissatisfied, he turned to philosophy and found many books, including some from Egypt. They stimulated him, but failed to meet his deepest needs." Unquote. So Solomon tried so hard to quench his thirst for the eternal with the temporal, but he failed spectacularly. Ecclesiastes 2.17 records this tragic statement by Solomon. He says, therefore, I hated life because the work that was done under the sun was distressing to me for all his vanity and grasping for the wind. Solomon, like all of us, had an overbearing eternal need in his soul to be righteous and he couldn't find it in the temporal things of life. Despite all his distractions, the question that was continually in the back of his mind was something like this. How can I, a sinner, come to God who is perfect and not be afraid of his angry judgment? He didn't find the answer because he was looking in the wrong place. The answer to the question cannot be found under the sun. To find it, we must look above. Isaiah 45.8 says, Shower, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open, that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them to be to, both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. God has planted eternity in the human heart, and our unshakable longing is to be righteous before God. But we can never do it on our own. So how can we become righteous, eternally righteous before God? Among the big questions about life, this is the biggest of them all. For, firstly, we, we must understand that there is a massive barrier between us and God. The Bible calls it sin. Sin is inherent in our fallen human nature and it manifests itself in the breaking of God's moral law. So before we can understand how we can be eternally righteous, we must properly understand what the Bible says about sin. Sin is not just some sickness common to all. If it, if it was, you could go to a doctor and get it treated. No, sin is a crime, primarily against God, though it usually involves others. And only a judge can help us deal with this crime. 
Our sin must be dealt with before we can have a relationship with a holy and righteous God. We must realise that sin is serious and has serious consequences. Sin is the reason why in all of recorded history, the world has only been a total peace for just 8% of the time. Sin is the reason why billions and billions of people are buried in graveyards throughout history. The wages of sin is death, and death has a 100% strike rate. Sin is the reason for the pain and the heartache and the emptiness experienced by millions every day. With each passing year, more and more people find it just too much to bear and decide to end it all. Sin has very serious consequences. So, also, how do we explain volcanoes and tsunamis and earthquakes? Don't these also point to the consequences of sin? Or are these things just natural? And, and death and moral confusion and injustice, are these things just normal? Is sin just a momentary lapse from what, which people soon recover? Well, they haven't yet because they can't. Proverbs 14.9 says, The way of the wicked is like darkness. They do not know what makes them stumble. No, we must acknowledge that sin is serious. And all our efforts to deal with it on our own are destined for failure. We must realise that only God, the righteous judge, can build, bring guilty sinners to court and provide a way to legally resolve their case without compromising his justice. Amazingly, all the sinner needs to do is to accept God's solution and he will be declared righteous. He will walk away in perfect peace, knowing that God's law and God's love have been completely satisfied without one giving way to the other. So what is God's solution? How does God make helpless sinners eternally righteous? In short, God's solution is substitution. Substitution is the way that God has chosen to deal with our sin. Substitution is a legal process by which God allows someone who is innocent to take place of someone who is guilty. We see limited examples of this in everyday life. For instance, if a person can be taken to court because they legally owe someone money and another person pays that person's debt, then the matter can be settled without the need for a trial. The person who has owed the money is satisfied even though the debtor has not paid the debt personally. But in other instances, for murder, uh, for example, the, the guilty person has to be punished personally. A third party cannot serve their jail sentence in their place. But God has chosen to deal with all our crimes against him, all deserving of death, by way of substitution. We see this principle throughout the Bible. If we look back to Genesis chapter 4, we see that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord, and his brother Abel also brought of the firstborn of the flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. God approved of the death of an innocent animal as a substitute, albeit a temporary one, for Abel. 
but he rejected Cain's sacrifice and therefore Cain himself because it did not involve the death of a substitute. In Exodus chapter 12, we read about the first Passover in Egypt. The Passover lamb was the, the animal that, that God had directed the Israelites to use as a sacrifice on the night that he struck down the firstborn of the sons of Egypt in every household. The, the head of the household was uh, to slaughter the animal, uh, the, the lamb at twilight, taking care that none of its bones were broken and to apply some of the blood to the tops and the sides of the door frames of the houses. And God said that when he saw the, the lamb's blood on the door frame, he would pass over that home and not permit the destroyer to enter. Any home without the blood of the lamb would have had their firstborn son struck down that night. Now we also see here a foreshadowing of the consummate lamb of God, the consummate Passover lamb, Jesus Christ. John the Baptist recognized him as the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, John 1.29. After the Israelites escaped from Egypt while still in the desert, God gave them a more detailed system of animal sacrifices. And the main reason for this was to show them the principle of substitution. The sacrifice of animals on their behalf would deal with their guilt and bring them cleansing and forgiveness, but only for a time. These sacrifices could only cover sin temporarily and needed to be repeated time and time again. Hebrews 10, 1-4 says, For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually, year after year, make those who approach perfect. For then they would not have, would, for then would they not have ceased to be offered. For the worshippers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sin. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. The continual shedding of the blood of bulls and goats could provide only a temporary righteousness before God, but it foreshadowed the coming of the Lamb of God, who would provide a permanent and everlasting righteousness for God's people through the perfect sacrifice of Himself. Jesus Christ came into the world to die on the cross as a sinless substitute for sinners. He not, but He not only died for them, He also lived a perfect life for them as well. He was the sinner's substitute throughout his life, not only on the cross. Right from the beginning, Jesus experienced the rejection that sinners deserve. There was no room for him at the inn. He was born at a stable. After eight days, he was circumcised. And circumcision was a sign that the person being circumcised was a sinner and in need of cleansing. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us that God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we may become the righteousness of God in him. Though Jesus was holy and totally without sin, he still underwent this, the ritual of circumcision, not for himself, but as our substitute. 
Galatians 5.3 says, And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. Once Jesus was circumcised, he became under obligation to keep the whole of God's law. Not for himself, he was perfect, but as our substitute. He embarked on a life of complete obedience on our behalf, as we read in Romans 5.19. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Jesus' baptism was yet another sign that he was representing sinners. Baptism represented death to, to sin and cleansing from it. And again, Jesus personally had no need to be cleansed from sin, but he did so to fulfill all righteousness on our behalf, Matthew 3.15. In Psalm 22, a, a prophetic psalm about the cross of Christ, it describes Christ's feelings as he bore our sins upon his body on the tree as our substitute. Verses 14 to 15 say, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It has melted within me. My strength is dried up like a pot's herd and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. William MacDonald comments, Christ's physical sufferings were beyond description. There was his exhaustion. He was poured out like water. There was the agony of bone dislocation by hanging on the cross. All his bones were out of joint. There was the violent disorder of his eternal organs, internal organs. His heart, for instance, was melted like wax within his breast. There was his unendurable weakness. His strength was dried up like a fragment of pottery. There was his unremitting thirst. His tongue was clinging to his jaws. It could only mean that God was laying him in the dust of death. Unquote. But as agonizing and shocking as this was, there was something even worse that Jesus had to endure. Although Jesus' physical suffering and death were absolutely necessary, his suffering did not just involve the cruelty of evil men. On the cross, he also endured the judgment of God. In order to satisfy God's justice against guilty sinners, and appease God's righteous anger. Jesus took the wrath of God upon himself in their place. This was predicted 700 years beforehand in one of the great Old Testament prophecies concerning the Jewish Messiah. It's found in the 53rd, 53rd chapter of the prophet Isaiah. Up till that point, through the sacrificial system given to them by God, the nation of Israel had received some understanding about what the Messiah would come to do. But in Isaiah 53, very specific details are given about him. We're told that he is despised and rejected by men and acquainted with grief, that he is pierced through for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. Yahweh laid on him the iniquity of us all because we had all gone our own way. 
And when we get to verse 10, it reveals something that every Jew would have found almost impossible to believe. The CSB translates it as, Yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. Isaiah 10, 53, 10. God the Father actually had pleasure in crushing Jesus. How can a man, how can a God who is loved do this to his own son? People who do not properly understand God's attributes still cannot understand how a loving God can do this to his own son. They say it is tantamount to child abuse and an affront to his character. The problem about these people is that they have decided that God's love outweighs all his other attributes. When in fact, no attribute of God is more important than the other. God's wrath, his, his righteous anger, is just as important as his love. If God did not exhibit righteous anger towards sinners, he simply would not be righteous. You've probably heard the expression, God hates sin, but he loves the sinner. Well, that's, that's only partly true. Scripture teaches that God both loves and hates the sinner at the same time. Romans 1.18 in the NLT says, But God shows his anger, the Greek, orge, wrath, from heaven against all sinful wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. God will not throw sin into hell, but sinful wicked people. That is why unrepentant sinners are obsessed with this fear of death that we mentioned earlier. They instinctively know that their sins will find them out at the bar of God and they fear his righteous, angry judgment. God cannot just shrug off sin and say, well, you know, it doesn't matter, let bygones be bygones. If he did that, he would go on back on his word to punish sinners and signal that sin is just not such a big deal. But he also loves sinners. And Romans 6.23 beautifully encapsulates his anger and his love towards sinners. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The reason it pleased Yahweh to crush his son severely is so that his love can freely rest upon us. The Father poured out his wrath against our sin on Jesus as our sinless substitute so that we um, do not have to personally experience his wrath. And remember, we don't have to do anything to become objects of his wrath. Ephesians 2.3 says that prior to believing in Christ, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. John 3.36, he who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe in the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides or remains on him. One commentary says, don't ever get the idea that God loves you because Christ died for you. No, it's the other way around. Christ died for you because God loved you. He loved you even when you were the object of his wrath. God so loved the objects of his wrath that he spent his wrath on himself on the cross. The outpouring of God's wrath was the greatest act of love this world has ever seen. The hope for sinners is that between us 
and the wrath of God stands the cross of Christ. Sin was laid on Jesus and the divine wrath towards it was poured out, spent and exhausted in the darkness of Calvary. And when it was done, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, It is finished. The wrath of God will one day be poured out on all sin that was... I'll say, say that again. The wrath of God that will one day be poured out on all sin was spent at the cross with regard to all who are in him. The cross of Christ testifies that God's wrath against our sin has been poured out and spent and exhausted and righteousness has been provided for an unrighteous people. The deepest longing of man's heart to be eternally righteous before God can now be satisfied through Jesus Christ. The Bible says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It is important that God is not just forgiving, but just at the same time. Every sinner who comes for forgiveness comes on the basis of God's love and God's righteousness. God is forgiving and he is just. His solution to our sin is based on what Jesus has done. Jesus, our legal representative, who has kept the righteous demands of the God's law on our behalf. In God's eyes, all that repent and believe in Christ and his work on the cross are now righteous forever, just as he is righteous. In God's great wisdom, he has come up with a solution that fulfills his law, provides forgiveness and enables sinners to receive the righteousness of Christ. Now, some people object to this. They reckon it's not fair to benefit from something that somebody else has earned. But even a, a cursory examination of such claims will reveal that they are utterly hypocritical. These same people will play lotto in the hope of receiving something for nothing. These same people will have no problem receiving money or property through an inheritance. And they would be quite happy to have their debts paid by a third party should such an offer be made. The real reason for not accepting God's solution is pride. They long for eternal righteousness but succumb to self-righteousness instead. But let's not talk about them. Let's make this personal. Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed for men to die once, and after this, the judgment. This is one appointment that you will definitely keep. You and me, everybody. God, the righteous judge, will judge everyone according to their works. To receive eternal life, one will have to display an eternal righteousness, a perfect righteousness, no less than the righteousness of God himself. Are you confident that your works will provide the perfect righteousness that God requires? Will they pass the test? Have your works fulfilled God's righteous moral law? Jesus said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven. 37. Now, we don't even need to examine ourselves in the light of the Ten Commandments. Can you get past this one? 
This is the big one. This is the greatest one, the great commandment. And we know we can't because we, we are lost, unrighteous sinners. The consequence of doing nothing is tragic. And if you're just trying to ignore death and judgment by looking to worldly distractions that will take your mind off these things, then that's not the right way to do it. Jesus said, what, what profit is it for a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will, it, what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father and his angels, and then he will reform and reward each one according to his work. Matthew 16, 26 to 27. Even if you gain the whole world, what will it profit you when the Son of Man returns to, to earth in the glory of his Father and your works fail the test? What will you do when your self-righteousness is exposed? It will be too late. Jesus uses the term weeping and gnashing of teeth seven times in the gospel. It speaks of inconsolable grief and unremitting torment of hell. Jesus uses it in different contexts, but in Luke chapter 13, he uses it as a parable to emphasize the deadly consequences of delay, particularly amongst those who consider themselves as religious. This is where we really need to listen. This parable is aimed primarily at the Jewish people who are present on that day, but it also has personal application to all of us today. The narrative reads, And he went through the cities and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. And then one said to him, Lord, are there few who are saved? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow gate, for many, I say to you, will enter and not be able and when once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. And he will answer and say to you, I do not know you. Where are you from? Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence. You, you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I, I don't know you. Where are you from? Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. And there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and you yourselves thrust out. Luke 13, 22 to 28. These people had a false sense of security. They never really trusted God. They thought that their ancient religion, religion could save them. So they delayed in making a real commitment to God. If we apply to that situation in a con contemporary setting today, this is a clear warning to many of us who regularly attend church. You, you may have attended church since childhood. You've rubbed shoulders with Christians. You've heard the gospel on numerous occasions. You've sat under sound biblical teaching. But you have never actually trusted in Christ. You keep delaying because you think you have plenty of time. I'm almost certain I'm describing some people who are sitting here today or listening elsewhere. God has given you the great privilege of hearing the gospel of Christ and many opportunities to respond. But you would not. You are still too preoccupied with the world and what it has to offer. In the previous chapter, Luke 12, 
Jesus tells the parable of the rich fool who amasses great wealth and says to his soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God says to him, Fool, this night your soul will be required from you. Like Solomon, he embraced everything the world could possibly give him, but it left him with a false sense of security. Death came unexpectedly and suddenly it was too late. He will face God at the judgment with nothing but his self-righteousness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. One of the great agonies of hell for normally religious people will be the remembrance of wasted opportunity. I was so close to receiving an everlasting righteousness through Christ and the gospel. But I delayed and died in my sins. J.C. Ryle said, The saddest road to hell is one that runs under the pulpit, past the Bible, and through the middle of warnings and invitations. My brothers and sisters, don't let this be you. Come to Christ today. God, this very moment offers you hope and reconciliation through the gospel of Christ. As we finish up, Romans 5 says, Now hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For while we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely a righteous man, for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received the reconciliation. And as the music team comes out, I want to say, come to Christ today. Come to Christ today if you haven't already. It doesn't matter whether you're a church attender. It doesn't matter whether you're religious. Have you come to Christ in repentance and faith? Come today. Come today. Satisfy that great longing in your soul that will never go away until your righteousness is found in Christ alone. By faith, receive his eternal righteousness and the assurance that you have passed from death to life. Jesus said, most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.